SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Well, it looks as though you've got yourself a little bit of a situation down here. Anyway. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is William Thrasher. And I'm getting some very, very interesting results. That's right. We're watching um, The Office, The Cube. Well, I mean, Cube Zero. Hey, now. Yeah. Uh, it came out in 2004. Um, Just two I don't years think... after uh, Cube yeah. 2 Hypercube. And it's worth noting the uh, director and writer, Ernie Barbarash, was a producer on Cube 2 Hypercube. And he allegedly rewrote much of the original script for Cube 2. Um, and uh, so he's the writer and director, produced by Susan Colvin Golding and John Golding, uh, starring Zachary Bennett, David Hubin, Stephanie Moore, Michael Riley, Martin Roach, music by Norman Orenstein, cinematography Francois Dagenet, edited by Mitchell Lackey and Mark Sanders, um, runs at a crisp 97 minutes. I think he could have. Uh, had five minutes taken out of it, but that's true of most movies. Although and it's still, overall, still blessedly short. It, it is. And um, this poster they have on Wikipedia for Cube Zero is terrible. It's just of the cube door. It looks like it was done in a college 101 Photoshop class. Yeah, it's it's not nearly as atmospheric. <laughs> uh, it doesn't create nearly as much as impression as the original cube poster that made it such so tantalizing to see uh, in the video rental store. Yeah, now the, the video box art for Cube Zero, at least in the United States, is, is a close-up of a man screaming in through a, a porthole of a cube, which is better than this piece of shit on Wikipedia. <laughs> All right, so, so Cube Zero, I really need to get this uh, out of the way. Yeah. So, the, so this, this movie, I've now seen it three times. Um, Why? Why? We don't. We don't have to. Go, well, once for this show, certainly. Okay. Um. But so so do with with Cube Zero. So the makers of this film seem to have opened the model kit to make Terry Gilliam's Brazil, but then accidentally <laughs> made Saw. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um. And yeah. I remember. Because you know the cube, uh, the cube series was still you know pretty pretty hot uh, in this in this time, especially amongst pretentious college film students such as myself. And I remember like people getting so excited because the big selling point of this movie. So this is something I hate. Uh, Wikipedia says it's a prequel, and all of the descriptions on streaming services say that it's a prequel. It was not marketed as a prequel. The fact that it's a prequel is supposed to be the big reveal at the end of the movie. So this is kind of like when they put the Statue of Liberty on the boxes for all the Planet of the Apes DVDs. All we knew yeah. going into it at the time was that this was supposed to be the movie that was going to finally go into the Cube's origins. 
And it does. But something that I love about this movie is everything they do to answer a question about what the cube is and who builds it only raises bigger questions. <laughs> hmm. Right. Well, but, I mean, to be fair, this is called Cube Zero. Did you not think it would lead into the original? Well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a hint, yes, but the fact that it's a straight-up prequel... Is, is something that, when it was originally released, was not something that the audience was necessarily supposed to know. I see. So, yeah, I mean, this movie, I had, um... First time I was watching it was for the show, and I, I was in college at the same time as, as you, towards the end of uh, our collegiate careers. I think you had graduated by this point, I think, in 2004. And, um... Uh, no, I, not I just, by October. Not by October? Okay. Um, so... But when did you graduate? I graduated in May, two thousand five. Yeah, I would have. I would have graduated. Uh, oh gosh, it was towards the end of the year. I don't. I'm trying to remember when the quarters ended. I probably would have graduated in in. Uh, I guess I would have graduated in June of two thousand four. Two thousand five. Oh, two thousand. Okay. Yeah. Um, so but anyhow, yeah, I do. I was working at uh, movie retail stores and stuff a lot at this time uh, during the summer between semesters. And I remember when Cube Zero came out, I, I was like, Cube Zero? And it, it struck me because at the time, the only other movie I had heard that had Zero in the title and was a prequel was um, the, the Japanese horror film uh, Ringu Zero. And I could totally see that being an influence. Yeah, and um, and since then you've seen a lot of movies with blah 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 zero, you know, in the title. And I think it's interesting. But then if you do a prequel to a prequel, what do you call it? Cube point five, cube negative three, like it. <laughs> as far as a way to title something with a number and let you know it's a prequel, I think zero works fine. But it's also limiting in some way. Um, that being said, you know, cube zero. It, it got better reviews than Cube 2, which is not terribly surprising. But Well, it certainly has more personality than Cube 2. It has more personality. And also, part of the interesting thing, I think, of the, the Cube movies is you stay in the Cube. And this one, a lot of it isn't in the Cube, really. Well, yes and no. Because, mm. so, 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 so yeah, we see a lot of stuff that's outside the Cube, but we don't really see much that's outside the Cube. Because part this movie has like reveal upon reveal upon reveal, but a, a lot of this film we spend time with uh, Win and Dodd, two you know for lack of a better term cube technicians, two like mechanics who monitor the cube and make sure that the that the cube is running from this like dinky office loaded with filing cabinets and weird machinery again straight out of Brazil. Um, and we come to find out that they're not really outside the cube. They are also test subjects. Yeah. So they're That's part right. of a larger cube. Yep. And, um... But I think before we go into the, the movie's plot proper, let's, let's go over some of the cast, you know, who kind of jumped out, who was good, who was not so good. Um, I... Zachary Bennett, as, as Wynn, the younger of the two technicians, his performance really grew on me. Uh... At first, I was sort of annoyed by his drawing comic book characters and so forth, but he um, he, he, has, he has a moral center, and he has a very strong point of view. And I think he's less cartoonish than Dodd, played by David Hubend. 
Well, well Dodd is straight out of a workplace uh, sitcom. Yeah, from his in his arc from by the books to I'm suddenly going to be a hero, I, I didn't find really believable. Well, it happens. I think it happens a bit too quickly. Yep. Like I feel like there's a scene or two missing where we could have seen his transformation. But talk, talking about so talking about wins wins art. So I'm both as an artist and as someone who knows how comic book uh, how mainstream comic book publishing works. This he is such a movie cartoonist mm. because all of his art is perfectly finished. There's no process to it. Also, despite the fact that he's only using a standard uh, felt tip pen, he can somehow draw in half tone. Yeah, that's odd. I think the <laughs> the style of of his comic is uh, passable. It, it's not horrendous, but it's nothing nothing special about it either. Um, it, it looks like the kind of artwork for a an upper tier Bible comic or something. Well, you know, it, it, you would have seen a lot of it in the nineties. Yes, yeah, that's fair. it. Kind of has like it's a post Liefeld look, trying to mimic comics golden age. Right, so it's a it's a move away from in the early '90s, uh, late '80s. You had like the everyone looked like Schwarzenegger with the big muscles and stuff. So it's move away from that, but it, it's a um, a clean look, shall we say, but also kind of bland at the same time for the main characters. Square jaw, that sort of thing. Um, I some people criticize this performance as, as too goofy, but I did enjoy Michael Riley as Jax. Oh no, he he is wonderfully over the top. Yes. And and he's so matter of fact. Like crazy shit happens all around him, but I love how matter of fact he is. Like he is also from a workplace comedy, but he's from a workplace comedy in the darkest dystopia you can imagine. <laughs> I I really appreciated his extreme sarcasm. What? My absolute favorite thing is there's there's a scene like towards the middle of the movie where he's talking to Dodd and he has this pen he keeps gesturing with, and in the middle of the conversation he just blows into the pen and this powder comes out the other end and paralyzes Dodd, and he goes instant paralysis. Oh, they weren't kidding, were they? <laughs> and he's just yeah. so pleased with himself that this spot gadget he has works with no catches. Oh. Well, okay, yeah. But no, I let's, like Jax. <laughs> uh-huh. Let's get into the movie. Like all the other cute movies, it starts with a standalone scene of a character getting killed in a trap room. Yeah, he just... This this guy gets... Uh, he's he's wandering through the cube, and this is a... Like, okay, so the sets look so much better yep. than in uh, Hypercube. But like it is, it is a cube that looks like it was designed by Jigsaw from the Saw movies. There's chains worked into the cubes. There's all this industrial piping. The lighting is the best way I can describe the lighting is unhealthy. And these weird, crazy, like you know, industrial doors. Yeah, but he goes into a room and he gets sprayed down with liquid. And at first he's panicking because we've all seen in the all the previous movies people getting sprayed with acid. Yeah, but he doesn't melt. And he starts, wait a minute, this is water, I can drink! And he starts, like, licking all the water off of himself, but then he starts melting, and he just peels himself apart and turns into goo. It's a very mean-spirited death. 
Yeah, later, later we find out that the water was infected with a necrotizing bacteria, and that's why he melted. But it does kind of like it does kind of come out of nowhere. Like the, you know, it's, it's funny. I've seen this three times, but every time I see this scene. I keep waiting for it to turn out that he's been doused with gasoline and he's going to get set on fire. Yeah, you know, I, I thought that too. And then I'm like, well, if he was trying to drink gasoline, it's, it's a flavor most people don't enjoy. Um, so there you go. And I, I think, um, but yeah, from that we get the, the reveal, which I think had you not known what this film is about, it would be a big one. And that we kind of zoom out and we get to see the, the control room um, or at least a control room, where these these, these two characters, uh, Win and Dodd, are looking through the monitor, just monitoring what's happening in different rooms of the cube, and they can make adjustments to to traps and things if the informations if they need to. And it's it's something I never considered in the other movies. And uh, at first, it was a bit of a turnoff that it was outside of the cube. But on the other hand, if you're gonna shake up the formula, but this isn't a terrible way to go about it. Well, what's so wonderful though is that is that their their like control room or whatever it is, it's the environment is just as bleak and oppressive as the inside of the cube. And I like with all the technology and three D graphics and stuff they can do with the monitoring, they have a physical rotary landline phone that's under lock and key that you know you're only supposed to answer if you get a call that's from upstairs that's from the big boss. And you're only supposed to dial out if it's an absolute emergency. <laughs> right. And you cannot, uh, and you never hear the voice on the other end, which I think is effective. Yeah, and, and also, like, keeping with the cube imagery, like, all the filing cabinets are cubes, and everything has four sides in their room. Yeah. It's, 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 so we, we do still get some of that numerical, uh, imagery. Uh, and you know, and so they just they just, like fill out a form because that first guy died, and they file it away uh, in the filing cabinet. And then, uh, like you know, we get you we get an opening credit sequence with a little bit of CGI. It's 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 nothing too impressive, but um, then like there's an elevator <laughs> there's an elevator that connects to their office, and it opens. And, like, there's a little tray inside with two food pills marked with yeah. these arcade sigils. And, like, they eat the food pills, but also give this weird little prayer. But then there's, like, a little hologram flimsy that gives them their instructions that there's a specific person in the cube they're now supposed to monitor. Uh, and that's our sort of protagonist, uh, Stephanie, actress Stephanie Moore, as Cassandra Reigns. Who, yeah, the uh, part with the pill was a bit Willy Wonka for my liking. Well, it's Willy Wonka sla again slash like Brazil, like it's this weird. It's this just it's this touch of weirdness, and the touches of weirdness keep coming. Yeah, and so that you get uh, Win gets a crush on this character. I found that like believable because I don't know. I worked retail, and, and you're face-to-face -face with all these people you don't know, and you, you sometimes you may grow feelings for some of the customers, or you have your own idea of what their story is. You know, your mind starts wandering, uh, doing all this face-to-face -face stuff all the time. And that, that that's sort of his thing. He feels sympathy for her, and he tries to dig through her file and find things. Uh, I thought it was a very believable kind of character, the thing that drives the plot. 
Well, and this is something that, and and we also learned that you know Cassandra is was like a a a, a, a political radical, and that's part of why she's there. But something that's something that's fascinating uh, that comes up when uh, Wayne is going through the files is that it's revealed that everyone in the cube, and presumably anyone who's ever been in the cube, is in the cube voluntarily. That they signed a release form of yeah, to participate yeah. in 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 cube-based trials. But for whatever reason, they have their memories erased. And that's one that's one thing that, that raises a lot of questions. So in this version of the cube, everyone in the cube has had their memories erased. They don't really know who they are. Some of them do recover, like, like uh, Cassandra, they do recover their memories as the movie goes along, which raises the question, in all of the other cube films, is anyone who they said they were, or do they all have false memories implanted? Sure, and also it got me to, to thinking, uh, as good science fiction premises do, what would make someone volunteer to go in the cube? And like, would it have to be like a big cash payout? Would it be uh, taking all your, your crimes off your record? Well, in the case of, of Cassandra, the implication seems to be she agreed to do it to get her sentence commuted. Right. Although, yeah. as something Wynne discovers, she doesn't have a consent form, so it's illegal for her to be in the cube. Mm-hmm. And um, I was not terribly thrilled with one of the ongoing plot lines where uh, one of the people in the cube is is a military guy, and Cassandra keeps on getting in his face about it. Yeah, and he has tattooed on his forehead. So we get some inexplicable glimpses of the outside of the cube, because we do... They have a machine in the cube that can scan your dreams, and we get this weird flashback of Cassandra being separated from her daughter and we see surgery and we see microchips going into brains. And we also see them being chased through the woods by these shock troops who have glowing green eyes and these tattoos on their forehead that match the layout of the cube doors, which I'm, I'm wondering if, is this a reference to eyes on because the handle looks like, looks like an eye. It could be, and yeah, that the film doesn't call out the name specifically. I think is maybe trying to distance itself from Cube Two. But but um, this guy has one of the, one of the tattoos, just like just like the shock troops. So uh, right, and again, it's one of those things. Like you kind of immediately know he's going to turn out to be a threat later. Yep. But he doesn't it, remember ever being in the military, like everyone else. He just woke up there. He has no no memories. Well, and they, they do have a few lines of dialogue where it's like, well, if you're in the military, you know they put a chip on you so they can control what you're doing and, and keep an eye on you. And which I thought was a neat, um, a neat detail. Oh, so I, w- I want to talk about. So one of the people in 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 the cube is uh, Jellico, who's played by Terry Hawks. Do you know Terry Hawks? Nope. T- okay, so this this is so great. So Terry Hawks was the original English language voice of Sailor Moon. Oh. She played Sailor Moon throughout the original syndicated run yeah, of Sailor Moon. And she also played Sailor Moon in the first three movies. And then when it moved to Toonami, they, they recast the role, if I remember correctly. And, hmm. and what's great is, like, her, her the voice she's doing is, like, only a half step removed from the Sailor Moon voice. It's like if Sailor Moon was in her 20s, that's what she'd sound like. And whenever she gets really emotional, you hear the Sailor Moon voice come out of her. 
Don't call me Meatball Head. God, that's that's <laughs> funny. I never. Yeah, I did not pick up on that. That's a that's a good point. Um, one thing I thought that was pretty uh, amusing, and and maybe more so now that I've worked at a few different, um, I've worked in offices doing IT, but worked in offices nonetheless, is they get a call from the upstairs telling them it's time to do the exit procedure. And, and what you see is they have to get out. Uh, Owen gets this big old book out. Well, it's it's so funny, yeah, because we, we find out that someone, that, yeah. another character... So this is one thing that's introduced early on, is that Wynn and Dodd had two co-workers who went for vacations but never came back. Yep. And so, yeah, they, they hear that somebody's made it out of the cube, so they have to do the exit procedure, and it involves plugging this weird teletype machine into this weird wall socket, and there's, like, this book of instructions. <laughs> and what's really dark, because, again, it has implications for the other movies, is the guy... Is in horrible shape. He's missing an eye. He's bandaged up. He's bleeding. He gets out of the cube and then is immediately shackled in this weird silo. And they ask him a question. They ask him the question, do you believe in God? And they have a yes and a no button. And he answers no. So they press the no button and he's immediately incinerated. Yeah. So, like, it's... there's no point to getting out of the cube. And he's, well, wait, what happens if they answer yes? He's like, I don't know, because no one ever answers yes. <laughs> I just follow the procedure. It's a really dark moment, but I like that they got to whip out a book for the procedure of doing this, because this clearly doesn't happen very often. And the book is chained to the teletype machine. <laughs> yeah, and that is that mixture of, you know, old and new technology. It's not... I wouldn't call it cyberpunk, but it's that sort of like 80s Blade Runner aesthetic. Diesel punk, almost yeah, diesel punk. <laughs> almost diesel punk, where you have these big, thick, chunky machines. But it's at the a same retro time, futurism, they, I guess I'll say. Yeah, retro, that, there you go, retro, retro futurism. futurism. Um, oh, but that's the other thing, is that the, fe- the fellow who they incinerate, that's one of their co-workers. Right, and the incineration special effect is the one effect I, I wasn't thrilled about, because it looks you know, just about as bad as Scorpion burning someone alive in the Mortal Kombat <laughs> video games. All right, so, I'm ba- so I've got a question for you. So all the traps we see in, in all of the cubes are pretty much instantly lethal. So uh, why is this guy only injured? They're horrific injuries, but like what did he go through that left him so in- that left him injured but not dead? I think maybe because he was an employee of the cube of the corporation that runs the cube is that he he knew a bit about the traps and had good reflexes. Uh, also, luck, I think, would, would be why he survived some of those traps. Yeah, I, I've often wondered, but was, did he fight some other test subjects while he was in there? Oh, most most probably. Uh, I mean, speaking of which, we, we get an introduction to one of the characters earlier who, um, I think it's... Is it the... Is it the Mike, I think, the kind of bigger guy? And he, he holds up his hand and it only has three fingers. Which I thought was a good reveal. Yeah, although again, it's something that it doesn't exactly go anywhere. Oh, wait, no, no, no. He, he lost a finger to a trap. That's right. He lost a finger to a trap, but I think it's a funny reveal. Yeah. Something and they're like, oh, you, he, because they go like, oh, you're okay. You made it through a trap. Okay, how about that? And he holds up his hand and there's just three fingers. 
So something else, this movie does kind of like mock the idea of figuring the cube out. Because so the first uh, movie, you know, there were numbers on all the cubes. Second movie, no numbers. Third movie, the numbers are back. But the numbers make even less sense. Because they're not numbers, they're letters. But also the way they're written is that some of the numbers have periods between them and other numbers have commas between them. And they never really figure out what any of those mean. They just guess that they could only be but so far away from the edge based on the based on the letter value. Yeah, and they're thinking like, oh, is is it do I need to read the letters uh backwards? Oh, is it the number of what letter it is? Is it even an odd numbered letters? And, and even then they they take that they take that away from you because uh Wynn makes a big deal about how, you know, Cassandra doesn't have a consent form, so legally she can't be in the queue. We gotta get her out, that's an emergency. So they argue about whether or not they're gonna call the emergency line, but then the emergency line just starts ringing. Uh, you know, they have their brief conversation, and so someone is sent in from upstairs, and that's when uh Jax uh and his two associates uh are uh, are introduced. And they just kind of barge in and kind of take over the entire... They take over the entire operation. And, again, it's one of those things that's so inexplicable. Because Jax acts like an alien wearing human skin. He has this crazy cybernetic eye. His two associates have these, like, cyborg hands. And when they sit at consoles, they, like, wave their hands magically. And the consoles transform into completely different technology. (laughs) Yeah, that they sync up with, and and one of the first things they do is like, oh, the people in the cube have gotten too clever. We should take away their advantages, and they they melt all of the room numbers. I, I really like that twist because so much of the other movies rely on them. Oh, once they solve the room numbers, they're able to get further in the cube, and this just takes that away from them. And, and what's fascinating is they kind of reduce Dodd to doing to doing basic busy work. But but around the time this happens, so there's that elevator. Uh, Wynn just goes into the elevator. And this is one of the things I, f- I find fascinating. There's so many binaries in this movie. So we had the machine that just said yes, no for the exit procedure. In the elevator, the elevator only has up and down. Yep. So how the hell do you get to wherever they are? But yeah, he presses down, it goes down to the cube, and he enters the cube to try to get Cassandra out. And he then becomes kind of part of the part of the experiment. And this is when Dodd starts to turn, and Dodd starts doing little things to, to give Wynn more time, to the point where eventually Dodd does outright sabotage the cube by blowing a bunch of fuses and forcing the cube into a reset. Which, oh, yeah. And he even swallows, like, this control key. And that's where we get the th- the scene where Jax paralyzes him and cuts the key out of him in this very matter-of-fact way. Um, and, it, and it really is neat. And this is kind of one of those wonderful false hope moments because with the Cuban reset, all of the traps are disabled. So they're just running through rooms as fast yeah. as possible with all the doors open. It's a good movement. But, but uh, before then, with Wynn, we get a good um, look at... He, you know, they mentioned he's a bit of a, a prodigy, and what did they, uh, Wid, excuse me, what did they want to Dodd do is um, they play chess a lot, and they, they're challenging each other to different moves, and you get a really good kind of two-dimensional special effect of Wynn thinking through all the permutations of how, what his next move could be. 
Oh, yeah, because they, they make a bet where he's like, okay, you'll mm-hmm. answer one of my difficult questions if I show you three different ways to beat that chess move. And it's really, it's kind of a neat back and forth. And you get another similar uh, really good effect where um, Wynn gets in the cube and he's trying to map in his head where the exit is based on the position of the current cube. And it's a good, like, three-dimensional a representational like a sketch on a piece of paper. Yeah, it is it is pretty cool and it does it does give you a more of a sense of the geography of, of the cube. It does strangely enough it makes the it makes the cube seem realer and you know it distracts you from the fact that the cube is still just one set being reused over and over again with different lighting. And it's a good thing Wynn and Dodd have kind of the personalities they do and in Jax especially because unfortunately, the characters in the cube in this one are not that interesting. Well, it's it's kind of like it's it's not anything we haven't seen in the first two films as far as their personalities uh, are concerned. Um, and one thing one thing about them is that the the deaths in this one they 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 become a lot more horrific. And this is where I see more saw parallels, like like that one death where like the bolts shoot out of the wall tie someone up in razor wire and just cut them to pieces. Like a lot of the a lot of the deaths are dirty like that. Or like the guy who goes into a cube and giant speakers come out of the wall and play a sound wave so intense the person just liquefies. I like that one with the sound and yeah, you get you get a reprise of a a person being chopped up into cubes. Oh yeah, I mean there, there there's a lot of that, but like the the deaths the deaths are very painful and messy, and I feel like and that is that is another saw parallel. Although looking at look like looking at the the release dates of things, this movie would have been being made around the same time as Saw, so I can't really claim that one movie influenced the other. It just seems to be that these sort of dirty industrial horror environments and gruesome torturous deaths just were in the zeitgeist of the time. They were in the spirit of the time of the time. Right, because this was a good bit after something like Blair Witch Project. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it, It's interesting to see how the, how the trends come into place, and maybe it's because horror films uh, on DVD tend to sell better than uh, science fiction or, or other genres, right? I don't know. So, but, um, but the whole notion of the soldiers getting microchipped comes back. Because uh, Jax and his associates, they realize that they have a soldier in there, so he has a control chip. So they get an override code, take over the control chip, because they can't see in the cube because the system's rebooting. So they just take over him, see through his eyes, and send him to kill everyone in the cube so they can't get out. And so he becomes a zombie, his eyes start glowing green, and he also becomes superhuman. He starts doing these Spider-Man leaps. Yeah. It's, It's a weird touch i don't think the there's not a lot of weight to him jumping around and uh i understand you're trying to make him in the tradition of these movies you have a a person that turns and and kind of tries to kill everyone else but that you give him superpowers and they they do set it up with the soldier stuff but on the other hand it seems cheap at the same time well it's like unlike all the other people he's he never chose to become a threat like he's just flat out being remote controlled by some evil people and he's not as well-developed as, as some of the other bad guy characters in the other movies either, so it just is the... You know, you don't really care as much that he's the one that turns. Well, I end up feeling sorry for him, but I'm not sure if that's the movie's intention. Right. 
but you know, in the in the end, it's uh, he does die because. Uh, so this this is where it also gets it gets kind of fucked up. So they get to the the exit room. So they make reference about how there's there's two exits and there's supposed to be a service exit. They get to the service exit, which is a trapped room with a disabled spike trap, which they do use to kill him. They ram they ram the soldier into a spike, and there's this watery hole in the floor, uh, and so they do manage to jump out. Um, so this is this is another weird thing. So they swim they swim through the water and they come out in like this river. They're nowhere near a giant cube shaped facility. So how far did they swim? It's a it's an unanswered question. I mean, I'm sure it's one. like just a budgetary thing, and yet this this is it's one more inexplicable thing on top of another inexplicable thing because they keep showing us the horizon and we never see the facility that they would have had to have escaped from. But again, they're being chased by the the bad guy soldiers. Uh, Wynn gets captured. Uh, Cassandra doesn't. And that's when we jump ahead. Uh, Wynn wakes up in a hospital with his head cut open. Uh, and Jax comes in to chew him out. Uh, and is, you know, kind of puts a couple of things in the movie into context. Um and this is and this is when we get this movie's big reveal. So we've seen we've seen several times how Wynn signs his name to his sketches after he completes them. So uh, Jax holds up a consent form with Wynn's signature, and that's when we find out Wynn was also a voluntary test subject, and him operating the control room was part of his test. The test being run on him and Dodd, and presumably everybody else, but. Because of his actions, which I guess sabotaged the test and weren't part of it, his the way they said it is, your term has been extended for two lifetimes. Which is like, well, hold, wait, wait a minute, what does that mean? <laughs> like, are these, is, is Jax, like, is, does he work for the Adjustment Bureau? Like, is, is this god that they've mentioned, is that a real person? And this guy has lived several lifetimes? But, um... The guy, but when, you know, he's kind of happy because he realizes Cassandra hasn't been captured. And we do see a scene of Cassandra reunited with her daughter. I can only assume that that is a fantasy that Wynn is having when he undergoes surgery. I don't think that actually happened. But, you know, they mention how the next time Wynn is put into the test, they're going to make adjustments. And we see them performing brain surgery on him. And then we get the final shot of the movie. Wynn is in the cube and he's found and all of his dialogue is the same exact dialogue that we got when the character with the developmental disability in the original cube was found. He says, this room is green. I want to go back to the blue room. And that's what establishes this movie as a prequel. Turns out that guy never had a developmental disability. That guy was a lobotomized win. Yeah. And again, that's supposed to be a, a big reveal for people who have been following the series, but since all the descriptions now say it's a prequel, the impact of that scene is, is regrettably deadened. That's uh, that's true, and I think in those last like five minutes, they have so many plot twist upon plot twist that it becomes ridiculous. And yet, I like. I kind of like it. Like, I like how crazy and inexplicable, and we're not going to answer anything type thing. Like, I love the way this movie. Every time it tries to explain something involving the cube, it only gets bigger and crazier and raises more intense questions. But the one thing that I don't like about this, especially as a prequel, one of the things that made the previous two films really work for me 
is that all the characters seemed like normal people, just like you and me, who were suddenly put in this weird, uh, weird contained environment. But as this movie establishes, this series doesn't take place in the real world at all. It takes place in some crazy retro-futuristic dystopia. Which again raises the question, is has anyone in these movies been who they say they are? Uh, has anybody, yeah. has, has, has everybody had false memories? Yeah, the issue of unreliable narrator, I don't know. And it's, um, and yet, if this turns out to be the last Cube movie ever made, and I don't think that'll be the case, it's, I still found the very end reveal effective. No, and it, I think this is a more work. imaginative film than Cube 2 Hypercube. I mean, it, it has, it has real ambitions. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I I give Cube Zero uh, a sequel. Yes, it it does have its weaknesses, as you mentioned. It does lean more into the horror element, and yet, in spite of all that, you have you know uh, that it focuses on on technicians outside the cube. I think is a novel twist. I really enjoyed Michael Riley as Jax, and um, there's enough fun to be had had here. I'm a bit on the fence, but I will nudge it to a sequel. Yes. Uh, I'm going to give this an enthusiastic sequel. Yes, this movie is just crazy enough that I do I do find it very entertaining despite its flaws. I love the gutsiness of giving you the giving you the history and origin of the cube without really giving you the history and origin of the cube. I love the performances, particularly of Jax. I'm going to give this a sequel. Yes, but this is probably where the franchise should end. There really is nowhere to go but here. And it also makes the series a full circle. It be, it, it ends as it yeah. began. That's always nice. Uh, do you have a picture sequel? Yes, I do. So, my sequel is going to be a double prequel. Uh, it's going to be called Cube Alpha, and it's going to follow a young Jax. So Jax, you know, as inexplicable and crazy as he is, there's this one thing where, where he goes on this rant about how you can't trust machines... A machine is responsible for this, and he points to his cybernetic eye. And a machine is why I have ah. to use this. And he waves his cane around. I kind of want to go into that. So my premise is uh, Cube uh, Cube Alpha. It's going to take place during the construction of the Cube Complex, and Jax is overseeing uh, is overseeing the construction for uh, for the boss. So we get a lot, so we get a lot of internal politicking. We get we get tensions between the contractors and builders building the cube versus the management that's directing it. And Jax is in the center of all this. And one of the things we're going to play around with is that there are industrial accidents. People do die while building the cube either because of carelessness or because a trap misfires while it's being installed. Um and we'll dig a little bit more into sort of the God stuff. Like, there will be a full-time priest on staff to do these really quick funerals when people die, to the point where it will almost be a running gag. We will chew through this cast so fast that we will have the we will have the priest just walk on screen, do a real quick funeral service, and then walk off screen. Um, but Jack's in the middle of it, but Jax turns out to be accident-prone. During the course of the construction due to traps misfiring and due to some experimental construction equipment, you know, the, the machines he was ranting about, he does suffer his injuries. He gets the, he gets his limp, he gets his cybernetic eye, but we'll also learn that there are, there are injuries we don't see. 
We'll find out that part of his skull was caved in. He has a metal plate in his head. He's had joints replaced. He has an artificial heart. Like, he, he will be brutalized, but unlike everyone else, he will never die. He just keeps getting rebuilt and sent back to the construction site. Um, and in fact, the movie's, go the movie's going to end with it's just Jax and the last six construction workers. And the last six construction workers are the first cube test subjects. They're going to install the last piece of equipment. They're going to do the last safety check. And then Jax is just going to close the cube on them. Have a nice day. Hmm. Oh, and Jax will bleed greed for so green for some reason. This will never be discussed or addressed, but he'll bleed green for some reason. That's going to be my real over-the-top weird thing. I see. So if I were doing a, uh, a pitch a sequel, I think I would do a story focusing on the guy who was good at escaping from prisons from the first Cube film. Hmm. And it would have him escape as a young man, escaping his first prison, and then the twist at the end is that prison was actually the very first prototype for the cube. Really? Yep. Cool. And it would be called Prison Cube. Or not, not Cube Cell? No. Because... <laughs> And the, the tagline would be, don't drop the soap. That is an awful <laughs> tagline. <laughs> it is. And the poster would show a, a, a soap shaped like a cube, kind of like the logo for Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's what we need. We need Cube Club, where it's a club for people who are fans of this movie who build their own cube escape rooms and put themselves through it. But then it turns into a weird cult thing. You could always take the weird turn that Hellraiser, uh, Hell World took, where someone makes an MMO based on the earlier movies that's actually a setup just to kill a bunch of people at a party to sacrifice to the Hellraiser gods. Uh, well, when, when we do the post-theatrical Hellraiser movies, we'll talk about that in detail. I think that day is coming. It is, it is. It's uh, a lot of stuff in storage. Okay, so... Um, I got a question for you, Thrasher. What Ooh, you what's watching? What's that question? I'm all ears. What you watching? Oh man! Well, uh, I finally, uh, I finally finished up the toys that made us. Oh, okay. So, what did you think? Overall, I really, really loved it. I, I was fascinated by that Lego episode, just about the hit, the, the the long, extensive history of Legos and all the. All the ups and downs that Lego had, particularly in the early 21st century, it's and it's just as somebody who's who's just loved playing with Lego since I was like three, uh, it was it was really cool to to sort of of, of everything they've covered. That's the one toy where I've kind of lived through so much of its progress and was sort of followed it and upon like e even today, every few years I'll I'll purchase a Lego set for myself just to have something to put together. So like. Every, everything that happened, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. I was there for that. So that was a really neat experience. Uh, also, I remember that, that bit where they showed that like uh, that weird live-action adventure series that Lego produced. I remember, yep, I remember that too. That was syndicated in my hometown. <laughs> that was an awful show. Um, 
The Transformers one was very good too. I particularly like talking when they talked to Peter Cullen, and he talked about how he crafted the Optimus Prime voice based on his older brother, and that was really like shows that that encapsulates why that character was so special to so many of us growing up. That being said. I feel like the Transformers episode probably could have gone another 15 minutes. I felt like a lot of stuff was skipped over. Yeah, and it's, it's tricky with, with that stuff where it's tied into the toys, and I really I really liked uh, He-Man. Yeah, that that was fascinating. Especially I, I how, 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 how they just... failed. It's like relaunching it two separate times. <laughs> I'm actually fascinated. Like they talked to so they talked to so many of my favorite comic book people of that era. In part because so many of them worked on those toys. And then in He Man, you had people uh, sniping at each other on who created He Man. Oh yeah, there 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 were those there were those divisions. Well, I guess that, that's kind of the the differences. Like they. Oh god, was it Playmates who did He-Man? Mattel? Mattel, no. yeah, I just... I, oh yeah, well, I guess it was Mattel, just... It was Mattel. Like, I... Because He-Man, especially like on all of these, it's... Uh, that's a toy line that initially developed very, very organically. So I can totally see how there could be disagreements about who created what and what influenced who. Um, as opposed to, to Transformers, where it seems like who created what is apparently very, very well documented. <laughs> And with He-Man, the origin of Skeletor, uh, that story I thought was very dark. And I and actually, I remember that because I remember uh, that incident that they talk about where he, where there's there was a haunted house that had a real human corpse in it. I remember reading about that in that might have been the Big Book of Urban Legends, uh, where they where they 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 talked about that about that. That was one of the urban legends that turned out to be true. That is fascinating. Mm. Isn't it? And Skeletor was inspired by a real corpse. Yeah, and actually, my um, my sister's husband has a um, a, a, one a, a sketch or two framed from that original guy who's a friend of their family. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but I guess I, I really, I really like the toys that make it made us. I hope, I hope that at some point they do more because I think there's there are many more things to talk about as far as as far as toys and their history goes. Uh, but beyond that, like I, it's it's more for me anyway. It's more than just a nostalgia trip. Like there's real there's real information in these documentaries. Well, yeah, no, and I, at first I was. Um shying away from watching it because I thought, oh, it's just going to be fans about their expensive toy collections. And they really don't get into that aspect that much. It's more about business history and yeah, the, only, the, the, the creation of these properties. and Yeah, the only time they really extensively talk to collectors is during the uh, Star Wars episode. Yeah, and that feels a little bit out of place, but it, it also, that, that one ends with a statement, George Lucas turned down a request to be interviewed for this. Well, I guess I guess at the time that was made, that was when George Lucas had completely divorced himself from Star Wars, so I can understand why he wouldn't want to be interviewed. Yeah, um, you know, if, if if we get a season three or season two, however they're phrasing it, I would like I, I could see Ninja Turtles being a 
Oh yeah, when Ninja Turtles definitely needs to be covered. Uh, Gem and the Holograms needs to be covered. You know, you said, um, oh, uh, Transformers feels like it could have been two episodes. I felt the same way about G.I. Joe. Hmm, yeah. Because you had a whole lot to cover. Although I think that was season one. Um, you could do, I mean, there's Polly Pocket. You can do things like that. I mean, there's so much out there you could cover. But I agree, Toys That Made Us, excellent series. Um, I went to the theater and I saw a movie that was a sequel oh. called Ocean's 8. Oh, how was that? It's, it's just what you think it is. It's not, I would give it like a three out of four, maybe. So, so what I think it is, judging from the trailer, great cast, good performances, weak story. Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, weak story. It did look like they did film some of it at the Met, which I thought was impressive. Um, and they, you know, they do set up the, the storyline with Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett and then Bryn the other, you know, they take their time getting the team back together, which I thought was good. Um, on the on the other hand, you have these sort of it's sort of a trend you, you've seen in, in comedies lately where they're given something to do and then they're being told to improvise and the scenes go on for a bit too many beats. Oh yeah. I mean, I even, to that note, I even heard uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was on a podcast, and she said she was on some TV show, and the way they told, and basically they would have a camera, shove it in her face, and say, and tell her things like, act surprise, act sad, act, like they had her act through every emotion, so they had something they could cut to. Well, and she it, said, And she said, that really shows a lack of confidence in your work. Compared to something, and she compared it to, you know, the opposite of that was like uh, uh, A Fish Called Wanda, you know, which was based on a script co-written by John Cleese that was, you know, every single moment was like sweated out and planned out and had a real sense of timing to it. Well, you know, I've, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of movies kind of suffer from being too, uh, too improv heavy, and I think... Something that I think a lot of these movies can take a hint, uh, hint from is Christopher Guest's improv movies, because the way the way Christopher Guest does a lot of those improv heavy movies is that when they get when they film each scene, he tells each performer this is the fact about your character that you need to communicate during your improv, and this is the emotional truth about your character related to that fact that you need to communicate in this improv. And I think that's why his improv-heavy movies hold together so well, is that the improv-heavy scenes still form a narrative function and still progress the narrative of the film. Whereas a lot of these other movies, they just kind of... The plot is incidental, and it's all about doing these improv scenes, but as a result, we care less about the characters and their circumstances. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, the movie has some nice twist to it. It feels a bit stiff at at times, but it you know it has good music. It looks pretty. It, it, for a heist, they could have had um, a few more complications, I think, in there. And it did not need to be a hundred and ten minutes. It seems a bit lengthy for this kind of a show.
So I would say, you know, rent it, or it'd be a perfectly fine airplane movie. Oh, one last thing I noticed uh, related to Cube, uh, which I just discovered while you were talking to me about uh, Ocean's 8. Vincenzo Natali, who wrote and directed the first Cube, he apparently wrote a script for a Cube sequel that would have gone into detail about the world outside the Cube and why it was created, but huh. then decided he didn't want to make that movie, so he supposedly destroyed every copy of the script. Oh, weird. Interesting. Um, it just like he didn't find it interesting, which may be for the best, although I would like to know what, what his vision would have been. Yeah, he's done things here and there. I mean, he did a film I thought was really good called Splice. Oh, yeah. Very creepy, and... Um, He's really stuck to doing really uh, smaller movies. Um, oops, there's nothing wrong with that. I'd love to see this one he did, which is sort of a, a short film about the making of Terry Gilliam's controversial movie Tideland. Hmm. I wouldn't mind checking that out. Yeah, well, cool. Um, so, yeah, we're going to do our sequel scene from... Cube Zero. I, I would, if you don't mind, I would love to do uh, Jax. Oh, and Go if one thing it. seems weird about this scene, uh, Jax has a lot of in, uh, interactions with Dodd, and one of the running gags is that he always mispronounces Dodd's name to the yep. point where it clearly has to be intentional. Certainly, to get in his nerves. Um, so this scene, Jax, the guy with the, the false eye, is uh, kind of giving orders to Dodd. And this is when Dodd is pers when uh, Jax is personally reading an order from the people upstairs uh, to Dodd. So, so here we go. Order number seven nine three. Blah 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 blah. Commence a standard series of needle tests on Rain's group. You know what that means. Yes, sir. Of course, sir. All in a day's work, sir. Right away, sir. Do us a teensy favor and use Mr. Wynn's auxiliary monitor. We'll need the big guns here for our little mouse hunt. Of course, sir. Anything I can do to help, sir. That's the spirit, Mr. Maud. Way to keep the world safe for democracy. Yeah, just such a... That character livens up the film tremendously. And I think <laughs> if it was not for the character of Jax, I don't think I would have gotten a sequel yes to Cube Zero. Yeah, I, 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 that's that's why I want to build a prequel around uh, Jax. That needs to be a thing. Not Mr. Jax, just Jax. Yep. Um, well, so what do you want to cover as your next movie, Thrasher? Oh, gosh. Well, do we do we want to do uh, do we want to do uh, one of our palate cleansers or go straight into a whole new series? Why don't we do a palate cleanser and um, off that that list we were looking at before the show. Why don't we do a palate cleanser of the uh, Vacation, the attempt to reboot the National Lampoon Vacation series? That's true. Back in the uh, sequel cast one days, we did the National Lampoon Vacation series. Now we can do the one sequel, our sequel catch-up. Unfortunately, what I am reminded about this Vacation movies is we did a little contest, and the winner got the copies of the movies I, I watched for review. And as soon, almost as soon as he received them, he had a stroke and went to the hospital. Oh no! Did 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 he recover? I I think so. I I, ho I hope he did. Yeah, it, it was very uh, it, awkward memory I had with, with that it, one. Um, it, if you're out there and you're listening, you know we we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know you're okay. 
Yeah, reach out to us. That'd be great. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking about 2015's Vacation. It was not a... It was a flop. Um, despite the fact the trailers had the weird comment from Chevy Chase taken from an interview, or taken from a tweet, I love this vacation more than my own. <laughs> well, I, I could totally buy that Chevy Chase has absolute contempt for anything he's ever been in, so that could be why. He has a bit part in this one, as does the character that played the mother, the actor that played the mother, uh, <laughs> Beverly D'Angelo. All right, so uh, follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. So for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. You are really starting to bore me, Mr. Wynn. Without you, Zero, my hero, how wonderful you are. What's so wonderful about a zero? It's nothing, isn't it? Sure, it represents nothing alone. What place a zero after one? And you've got yourself a ten. See how you